0: If you have your Bible with you this morning, let me invite you to pull it out. If you need one, we'd love for you to grab one and keep one. Also back there at the welcome table. We are in the New Testament book of Acts this morning. Uh, And we will head to Acts chapter 17, the middle section of Acts chapter 17 this morning. We are well on our way by the end of the month of May uh, of completing the entire book of Acts that we began way back in September, walking chapter and verse through the book of Acts in a series that I've entitled, The Power to Change the World. Acts 17 is a fairly well-known chapter from among the many chapters of Acts. It is Paul's very famous uh, sermon, a very well-known sermon to a very well-known and very famous city. Uh, This is where he preaches to the people and to the city of Athens, Greece. And what he will really do, as we'll see in just a moment, is invite what has been historically known as sort of the knowledge capital of the world, the intellectual capital of the world, He's going to invite them to a much greater knowledge, not just a knowledge of things, but to know personally the one true God, one that they will, uh, he will recognize in them that they do not know anything about. So we're going to begin here this morning in verse 16. We will ultimately make our way to the end of this particular story in verse 34. Hear now the word of God as I read to us Acts 17, beginning in verse 16 through 21. The scripture says this. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask His blessing over His word this morning. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement. We thank you for the love that is contained. We thank you for the truth and the grace that is contained within. And Father, we submit to you and to your word this morning, Lord. Teach us. Lord, help us to know you more, not just to have sort of an intellectual knowledge of you, although knowing about you is good. But Father, help us to know you more deeply, more personally, draw us closer into relationship with you. And Father, maybe even for the first time this morning, that we might know you, the God of this universe and the Savior of sinners. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Three ways here in Acts chapter 17 that we are invited to know personally the God of the universe. The first is this, and what we have just read in verses 16 through 21. Number one, if you're taking notes, Paul invites those listening to identify the idols of your city and of your soul. Paul invites us to identify the idols of our city and of our soul. Uh, we're told that the city was full of idols, and as a result, Paul's spirit was provoked within him. That word provoked is the Greek word that means uh, greatly distressed. He is angry, he is upset, he is overwhelmed. This is a, an overwhelming feeling that he is having as he sees what is going on in the city. Uh, a man named Pausanias, who is a, a sort of a modern-day travel blogger, He lived one generation after Paul and he wrote about the city of Athens and his comment about the city of Athens back then was this, it's easier to meet a God on the street than to meet a man. So that was the nature of as you walk through Athens in that particular time in their their city's history. So the Athenians were spiritually empty, even though their streets were filled with spiritual sounding idols of various types. I wonder for you, as you think about our city, our state, our nation, our world, does your heart break as you consider the multitudes, literally the millions who are walking through life doing the same, who are chasing down the idols of our generation that promise great things and that absolutely cannot deliver what they promise? Does your heart break that people do not know God personally? For Athens at this time when Paul is there, Uh, Their empty living sort of centered around uh, living off of their past and and remembering the greatness of days gone by. Um, Gone are the days at this time in in history, when Paul is there visiting Athens, gone are the days of Socrates and and Plato and Aristotle, who came uh, three to 500 years before the scene here in scripture. Gone were the great days of military conquest over Persia, in particular in the Battle of Marathon, in which 100,000 Greeks defeated over 1 million Persians. Gone are the days of the Greek Spartans and their famous last stand at Thermopylae. Here, in this moment, as Paul is preaching, Uh, It says that there are three distinct groups in Athens who were listening to Paul share the gospel. The first is the Jews and devout people who were listening to him in the synagogue, the Jewish place of worship. But then there's the second group of sort of just everyday lost people, those that happen to be by God's goodness and sovereignty in the marketplace that day. But then mixed up in the marketplace and in the Areopagus was this third group, the intellectual elites of that era, which were the Epicureans and the Stoics. Uh, to help you understand a little bit more about those two groups in particular, these, these philosophical groups, the Epicureans were essentially agnostics. They would be the equivalent of what we would refer to as an agnostic today. Uh, if you had to, if you asked an agnostic what they believe about God, uh, they would essentially say this um, I'm pretty sure that it's impossible to know whether a God exists. That is essentially the, the, the position of an agnostic. I'm pretty sure that it's impossible to know whether a God exists. Uh, the Epicureans in particular believe that everything happened by chance. And then you die. Good news. <laughs> And that's the end. There is no resurrection. There is no spiritual element. There is no afterlife. The goal, then, in life was to have the maximum pleasure and to experience the minimum of pain. So these are materialists to the nth degree. Uh, if they had a motto, the Epicurean model would have been this grab all you can because you just live once. Okay. That's the Epicureans, right? Then there are the, uh, the Stoics. The Stoics were essentially pantheists. Uh, they believed God is in everything and everything is God. Um, they believed whatever happened was their destiny. So they live with sort of a, a fatalistic resignation or, or like an apathy, an apathetic detachment from reality and from the world. It, essentially, life is filled with good and bad, and there's nothing that we can do about it anyway. So their motto, the Stoics, their motto would have essentially been, if they had one, would be, it is what it is. It is what it is. When you think about our city streets and our nation, what are the idols in our streets today? Um, whether they be our literal streets or they be sort of our digital streets. When you drive the streets of our nation or when you walk into the homes here in America, is it the God of the Bible that we worship? Or is it the idols of our present age that if we stop and are honest, are not all that different from the idols of ancient Greece. We worship the idols of money, of sex, of power, of comfort, the, the motto of our day most certainly is, grab all you can because you just live once. Many of us are tempted to spend endless hours in the office, gain every last dollar that we can, initiate every side hustle that we possibly can in order to gain more money at the expense of our family. Corruption and abuses in our culture to build wealth regardless of may, who it may hurt run rampant everywhere. Many of us spend endless hours in isolation, locked into our screens, locked into our games, locked into our social media platforms, seeking comfort and not finding it with sort of a fatalistic resignation. Uh, On our streets, you can buy drugs, legal and illegal, to numb the pain, alcohol to detach for a while, but it won't last You can find every sort of sexual perversion and pornography, a multi-billion dollar industry that exploits and abuses people and sells people a lie that can never deliver what it claims to deliver. People are in slavery to the ever-deepening destruction of what we call here in America sexual freedom. And on our streets, you can even legally kill children in the womb in order to satisfy our desire for endless sexual idolatry and convenience. And if our spouse and our children outside the womb become a hindrance to our own personal freedom and fun, then we cast them aside often as well to do their own thing. We too find ourselves living in a nation that is past its prime, the glory days have long gone and our nation is in chaos because we have rejected the one true God. And we have replaced it with our own sort of pseudo-spiritualistic worldview. It's a sort of moral therapeutic deism. If that's not a word or phrase you've heard before, I encourage you to remember it. Moral therapeutic deism. Be a good person. Be tolerant of most views except Christianity, make sure that what you do feels warm and fuzzy to you. And yes, there's a God out there somewhere, but he has no relevance to your actual life. Just send out prayers and good feelings when bad things happen. We too are spiritual, just like the Greeks, but we don't know God in this city or in this world and our cities and our souls as believers as well are filled with idols That cannot deliver what they promise. What do we do? What do we do? Number two, Paul wants to answer that question clearly, not only for the Athenians, but for us today. Number two, seek the God who is as yet unknown to you. Seek the God who is as yet unknown to you. This will be Paul's message, his sermon to the Athenians who are gathered and listening to him in the marketplace. Hear the scripture now, verses 22 through 29. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown God, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man." Two things that we see here in this first part of of, of Paul's sermon. First, I want to step back and, and for us as believers recognize that the way that Paul talks to unbelieving people very clearly has both substantial grace and truth in it. Only Jesus does this perfectly, but we are called to follow in his footsteps, and I think Paul gives us a pretty good schematic of what it means to talk to people who don't yet know Jesus about their need for Jesus in a way that communicates God's grace and God's truth. Remember, Paul's spirit was provoked. He is upset, and rightly so, about what he has seen, and yet he still keeps the gospel forefront in his conversation with people. Verse 18 tells us what he preached. He preached Jesus and the resurrection. If you are in doubt what to say, preach Jesus and the resurrection. And he makes it relatable and he makes it understandable. Notice that he does not drag down the name of Christ by acting like a fool in the way that he interacts with people who have never heard about Jesus yet. He does not speak with spiritual arrogance or even with dishonest arguments. Uh, And we know from the remainder of the New Testament that Paul was a man, a sinner like you and I, but who daily repented of his own sins and lived in light of the same grace that he preached. Even when they call him a babbler uh, and they say, essentially, you know, "Don't, don't preach at me, uh this is how he reacts with grace and with truth. The apostle Peter gives us some very important instructions. If you are into memorizing scripture, and I would submit to you that you ought to be, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16 is incredibly helpful in this regard. Listen to how Peter tells us that we ought to do this sort of conversation. He says in verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, not if, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. In particular, when we have conversations about the value of human life, from womb to tomb, we ought to remember 1 Peter chapter 3. Paul does something else though. Not only is he speaking with grace and truth, Paul essentially he, he meets the Greeks where they are at. He finds ways to find common ground with them. And so he recognizes that they have a spiritual interest. I would say that Paul here has a pretty high cultural intelligence. He is others aware, and he even observes the Grecian poets. He connects what their people say to what the scripture says to help them make connections. He quotes a guy named Epimenides. Uh, That is the quote, in him we live and move and have our being. He's not quoting scripture there. He's quoting a Grecian poet. And then he quotes Aretas, who says, we are his offspring. They are a spiritually minded people, and Paul is meeting them where they are at. He contextualized the gospel is another way of putting it. He reasoned with people who lived by reason. He talked also with whoever the Lord sovereignly chose to put in the marketplace that day. Paul gives us a, one more verse here that I think is very instructive to how do we as believers engage conversations with the lost and unbelieving in our community. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 20 through 22. Here's how Paul says he approaches it. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Where is your marketplace today? And in what ways would God challenge you to get uncomfortable, to become all things to all people so that the Lord might save some? We don't save people. We share the message. God does the work of grace, but he has called us. He has commanded us to share grace and truth. Now, as as we've given sort of our roadmap for how do we speak, look at the words now that Paul speaks to the Athenians as he shares the gospel with them in this, this profound and creative way. He focuses on a specific idol in the middle of the city that has an inscription that says in tragic language, to the unknown God. They state publicly and for the record, we worship a God or gods in their case that we do not know. The Greek word here translated unknown in the phrase to the unknown God is the root from which we get the English word agnostic. Agnostic literally means without knowledge. So here we have the greatest intellectuals of the day, the smartest people of all time in some sense, who who know everything, and yet they don't know a thing about the person that is the most important person that any human being for all time must know, the person of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are ignorant of him. Why? 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 Why are they ignorant? Why, are, why is everyone who does not know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior yet, why don't they know? It's God's fault. God messed up. He made a mistake. The scripture gives us some instruction on this point. The Bible says that the reason that men and women don't know God is that they do not want to know God. The reason that we do not know God is because we do not want to know God. Look at Romans chapter 1 with me. This is verses 18 through 20. Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How did he do that? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." And this is really where, where Paul is going to begin to continue to walk with these Grecians who are listening. He's going to introduce them to God who is the creator. He's going to point out several things about who this God is and invite them to seek and to know the God who is the creator. He's going to tell us three things. He's going to tell us that, that first, thing, he's going to tell them that God is the creator of all things. He tells us that in verse 24 directly. If we go back to the Old Testament, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. He's going to say to them, There is one true God, and He is powerful, and He created you, and He created you lovingly, and He sees you. He says to the Athenians, You are not an accident. You are not a mistake. you are not unloved. You are not unseen or unimportant. God made you, and He made you in love. You are not at the next stage in evolution. You are not unimportant. You have been created in love. So he says, God is a loving creator. Then he says, God is a loving sustainer. He's the sustainer of all things, is what Paul says in verse 25. We pick up this same, same thread in Colossians 117 that says, "In Christ." All things hold together. That is, God is constantly holding together every aspect of this planet. Deism would say that that God made things and then walked away. He started the clock and he walked away. Christianity, the God of the Bible, the reality is that God sustains and holds all things together. So God is not only powerful, God is personal. Paul literally says, he doesn't need you. He wants you he loves you. He cares. So God is creator. He's sustainer. He's powerful. He's personal. And then he says, God is the ordainer of all things in verse 26, that God lovingly and sovereignly made you. So God is powerful. He's personal and he's providential. This is the God who he is inviting people to know that you have great value and dignity as his creation, as his image bearer from the moment of conception up to the moment that you see God face to face in heaven and are given a new and eternal body and spend eternity in glory with him. You are an image bearer of God. He sovereignly ordained your creation. In fact, Paul says God orchestrates everything so that we might seek him and know him. So so Paul's logic, if you're walking through, he reasons with him. He says basically, God made you, he loves you, he seeks you, therefore you should seek him. You see the flow of logic here? He's speaking to Grecians who are the kings of logic. You ought to know God personally and worship him. You can be free of the days of not knowing who God is or what he does and worshiping an unknown statue and you don't know who God is. You can know him personally. So seek God out is what Paul says. Well, again, how do we do that? Finally, point number three. And, and Paul's conclusion to this sermon in verses 30 through 34. Number three, turn to God, Paul will say to us, in repentance and belief. Turn to God in repentance and in belief. Hear the scripture here, verse 30 through 34. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I wonder who Paul's talking about there. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, "We will hear you again about this." So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him. <coughs> some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. God's command is to repent. God's invitation is to repent. Again, as we look not only at what his message is and thinking about how Paul delivers the message, I find it incredibly striking and a little startling, honestly, that Paul uses Christian words to speak to secular people. He does not back away from using God's word, the words that God has given us to explain the most important realities to them. I am sure that the word repent was a new word to them. And it may be a new word to those that you speak with. I don't take for granted when I'm sharing the gospel with somebody or when I'm speaking with my children, that they know what the word sin even means. Because the word sin is not a secular word. What what is sin? And and don't give them a five-point explanation. Sin is the bad things that we do. But Paul here uses the scripture's words. He uses Christian words, even though they are a secular people. He's not ashamed to speak God's word because he knows that those words bring life to those who hear them, even as he has experienced life himself. He knows that God's word is for all people, religious and secular, the elite and the overlooked. God's word, God's grace, God's salvation is for all of them. And so God calls all people everywhere to repent of their idolatry. There's another Bible word. Let's define it. What exactly do we mean when we say idolatry or or idols? Do you have a little, a little stone man in your house that you worship? Probably not. But idolatry is helpfully explained according to scripture as anything that you put ahead of God. Anything that you put ahead of God is idolatry. Put it another way. Idolatry is taking the good things that God has given you and making them ultimate things. When we take God's good gifts and we make them ultimate, we make them more important again than God himself, we have stumbled intentionally or unintentionally back into idolatry. This is not just something that the unbelieving world does. We as believers filled with the Holy Spirit are tempted and given to these sins every day. Idolatry is worship of something that is unworthy of worship. there is only one who is worthy of worship, God himself. And when we worship things, we worship people, we worship celebrity, we worship money, it's not worthy of worship. Then we get this word repentance. What is repentance? If you have to explain to somebody, what does that mean? Repentance means actively turning away from our sin and turning face to face to Jesus. See, a whole lot of times we treat repentance as stop doing bad things. And there is that element. But repentance on its own, if we just say, I'm not going to do that bad thing anymore, where will we find ourselves the very next day doing that same bad thing all over again? Because repentance is saying, these lesser things are not what they've promised to be. I need and I desire Jesus. I want to worship Jesus. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want his rules, his laws, his goodness to inform the way that I live my life. I want to turn away from lesser things and turn to God. Jeremiah 2.13 says, my people have, for- have made two mistakes. They- they've forsaken the fount of living water and they've begun to drink open cisterns. So literally instead of drinking from Christ, the fount of living water, what we do is we turn back to the sewers. Repentance is saying, I'm done with sewer water and I want to be filled with the water of life with Christ himself, his goodness, his forgiveness, his grace and mercy to me. Paul here gives three reasons to repent. He says, uh, God is patient. God has commanded you to repent and God's judgment is coming. Uh, The third of those three is probably the one that grabs your attention first, right? God has appointed a day when Jesus himself will judge the world and everyone in it. Let me give you a fourth reason that Paul gives us in, in Romans chapter two and verse four. Romans two, four says this, it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. Why should I repent? Because God is patient with you. Because God commands it. Because God is a holy, deserving, righteous judge of the world, and he will judge sin. And because he is kind, he has made a way for you to get out of the eternal predicament of sin. See, Jesus was not an Epicurean. Jesus was not an Epicurean. He was not in danger of adopting that philosophy of life. He did not live for the present. He did not live for his own pleasure. He lived for your life. Jesus did not avoid pain. Rather, he stepped into it because he knew that every single human being has an eternal soul and that they will face a holy God in judgment one day. And so he faced judgment on our behalf. Jesus was not a stoic. He didn't resign himself to what was going to happen. Ah, they messed up again. Let them be what they're going to be. He did not become apathetic to our situation. Rather, he stepped out, of sin, stepped out of heaven. He came down to a people who didn't want him or deserve him. He lived on display, humbly, a perfect life with no sin. And then he willingly went to a cross that we created and paid for the sins that we committed. He didn't become apathetic about our problem. He stepped into our problem. And where we were dead in our sin, he offered life. Jesus, who is perfect, sacrificed himself so that we could live. He accepted punishment. He accepted responsibility for my sins, for our sins. And in so doing, he has made a way for everyone to find their way to seek out God. Where did it begin? God sought us out. And now he is inviting you even this day to seek him out in faith and salvation. Say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Instead of trusting in you, I trust in my stuff. I trust in myself. I'm guilty of idolatry. Forgive me, save me, make me new. And he will always answer that prayer. Yes, so will you come to him in repentance and in, in faith, in belief, not just knowledge about God, but to know him personally. You notice here at the very end of the story, we get again, three, we get three distinct responses to the gospel message. The first group, they just mock him. Neither the Epicureans nor the Stoics believed in any sort of resurrection. And so when he brings up the idea of resurrection and applies it to Jesus and says, you can experience that too, they ridicule him. They mock him. Then there is a second group that essentially say, well, let me think about it. They delay responding to what uh, God has said through Paul here. It is interesting that in this case, what does the Bible say that Paul representative of Christ does immediately in chapter 17 verse 33, it says, so Paul went out from their midst verse or chapter 18, verse one, Paul left Athens. Do not wait Do not delay, do not put off the reality that God is holy and righteous and will judge sin and has made a way for you to be forgiven and to be saved, to be set free from the chains of sin that bind you and to experience new life in him. Do not put that off till tomorrow because there is some idol that you want to chase today. Humanly speaking, the Athenians did not get a second chance. There was no church that was planted in Athens. And that is unique among the many cities that Paul goes to and shares the gospel. They did not want it. And so he moved on to the next person and continued to share. He moved on to the next city and continued to share. But there were some who believed. This specific man, this specific one and others, which means at least two more people, at least four people, out of that whole city, the great city of Athens said, I want Jesus to be my personal Lord and Savior. Maybe that's you. Don't wait for everybody else around you to do it. Here's an applicable statement for our times. What is popular is not always right. What is right is not always popular. Do not wait for Jesus to be popular. Come to him in faith, acknowledging that he is true, that he offers grace because Jesus is the God of the universe, and he still saves people today. Amen? Let's talk to God right now. Let's, let's pray together.